recall some conversations that I have had in my own mind over the years where I ask a lot of questions. You ever ask a lot of questions of yourself? And you don't have the answer. There's no one listening but you. So no one can give you the answer. But I have asked the question before, what can God not do? What can God not do? Now most people say, well, what is it that God can do? But I think a better question is to say, what can God not do? And there's a short list. There are some things God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot fail. He cannot not be the high one, God. And we could speculate and reason through other iterations of those things. So if that's the truth about what God cannot do, then everything else God can accomplish according to His purposes and His power. And we've seen that, haven't we? Remember, Genesis 1 and 2 are written that we may know the power of God. Jesus says in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and the Son whom you have sent. Part of knowing salvifically God is that He grants us the wisdom and who is Christ Jesus to see who He really is. And one of those true things is His power. God is His power. His power is Him. And so we see the creation of all things out of nothing. We see it good. We see the creation of all life. We see the segregation, the division of all life. We see the unity of all things glorious and good. We see everything come together. We see man and then out of man come woman and all is good. But God then says something not so good in His Word at this time. Let's read together Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. And then the Lord God said, It is not good, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while the man slept... God took one of his ribs and closed up with its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he formed and made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and leave his mother and the two shall hold and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. See? Everything is good and then there's something that's not good. Now we've already discussed this. We've already talked about this. We already know the point of this text. Now, this is a part in Scripture where, you know, this poetic narrative, if I will, if I can say that for those of you who understand genre, 
This is an illustration of the fact that God did something and very brief specifics on what God did except that He made them. That's all He wants to reveal to us. And the reason that He made them is so that we could understand Christ and ourselves in Christ and out of Christ effectively. This is where we need to make special attention or take special attention to note that you cannot just start with the book of Genesis and understand it. You have to know the gospel. You have to understand that the apostles tell us what Moses means. Even the Jews of Jesus' day did not understand Moses. Remember in John chapter 5? where they're talking with Jesus and Jesus is talking with them and they're quoting scripture and talking about Moses and all the stuff that they've known and all the centuries of heady understanding of theology. And Jesus basically, and I'll paraphrase here, said, if you understood Moses, then you knew who I was. If you understood Moses, and if you saw and read Moses because you think that Moses will show you eternal life, you'd see that he was talking about me. Moses was talking about Christ when he said, in the beginning. Moses was talking about Christ when he said, let there be life, light. Moses was talking about Christ when he said that God formed the heavens and the earth. How do we know that? John tells us that in the prologue of his gospel narrative. Paul tells that very clearly to the Hebrew Christians when he wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Paul then also tells the Colossians the very same thing, that Christ, by the word of His power, upholds the universe that He created for His purpose and for His glory. But there's one element in the context of the power of God that we often fail to wonder about. And it is the central, it is one of the central things regarding the good report, the good news, what we call the gospel. The good news centers and sits upon the cliff of humility. Creation exists in a state of humility. It is unable to exist outside of, it, outside of its creator. Creation became in a state of humility. It was not, then it was, beholding to its creator. Creation still exists in a state of humility for it is upheld by the word of His power. In Romans 1, Paul makes it very clear that the power of God is revealed in the creation of all that exists, but the true revelation of the power of God in creating all things is simply to show His humble sacrifice of Himself as the God-man to save His people from their sin. And brothers and sisters, we spend a lot of time trying to make things too difficult. I promise you, children are better theologians than all the PhD friends that I have. They really are. And if you've never sat down and talked the Scripture with a child, you're missing out because they will say things. You go, I've been working two years to try to figure out how to put that simply. And then just go, it just comes out. We make much of things that shouldn't be made much of because we want to be the creator. We want to come to a place where 
Humility is not our platform. It is not upon that which we float and exist in the world. We want traction. We want teeth. We want hands. We want to be able to climb and scale this wall of Christianity. Scale this wall of doctrine. and Scale this wall of deep theology so that we can say, Aha! I have made it! Uh, by the grace of God, of course. That's baloney. I have stronger words, but rated G. It's baloney. Not to defame baloney, for those of you who eat it. It's garbage. Let's stop giving God credit for our hubris. Let's stop thanking Him for our arrogance. Let's stop giving Him the credit for our incredible intellectual pursuits. These are idols. Worshipping not the very one to whom they point. We're no different than the first century Sanhedrin when we do those things. And we're all in the same boat, see. We're all in the same boat. We all lack humility. The Pharisee, as Jesus would tell the story of these two distinctly different and far apart peoples. The Jewish tax collector, the publican who robbed his own people for his own profits and the Pharisee who worshipped and prayed and taught the Bible and corrected error and all of the garbage. And he thanked God that he was what he was and he tithed and he preached and he served and he was a You see what I'm saying? Folks, those are the voices that ring in my ears from my childhood. About being dedicated to the cause of Christ. You want to be dedicated to the cause of Christ? Be lowly. Be quiet. Be patient. Be submissive. And then there's the publican. The Pharisee said, Oh, thank you, God Almighty. Probably had tears flowing down his face that I'm not like that sinner over there, that I'm not like these sinners. Thank you, God, that I have all the right answers. Thank you, God, that I can parse the text. Thank you, God, that I can lead people to the truth of the glory of your name. But they could not see the glory of his name, see. They could not see it because they were blinded judicially because they were not in a place of humility because God had not granted the mind of the Pharisee in that story to change, to see the humility of Christ in His place in the grand scheme of the created world to, to, in the fact that God in all of His glorious, awesome magnificence became a nothing to save nothing. But the other man tore his clothes, would not even dare look toward the sky out of fear of gazing in the heavens. And a literal translation of what the Scripture says, he says, he says, Oh God, propitiate for me. That's what he says. Satisfy your wrath for me. That's a place of humility. And there is nothing in us that will muster that. Even the believer has not in them humility. 
We see it sometimes. We smell it often when it gets too hot on the stove. But it does not live there. The only humility that lives in us is the new man who is Jesus Christ. The only humility that lives in us is the brokenness of Christ's body and the spilling of His blood and that to our account. It is an alien humility. Therefore, it is an alien righteousness. And that has everything to do with this text. Because here we have the very place where we speak in almost every culture of the world some semblance of giving a husband and wife to one another in matrimony that they would be together till death do them part. Do they part? What kind of death? <laughs> There's plenty. And this picture is a perfect picture here in Genesis 2. And God has said that it was good, that everything He made was good, but it was not good that Adam be alone. Now, I wanna, I'm going to knock down the walls of patriarchal misogyny because it is demonic. A woman is not the property of her husband in any form or fashion except that she belongs to him in the same manner with the same fabric that he belongs to her. So they are mutually each other's as one person. Okay, The man is not the boss of the wife, nor does she have to do everything he says to do. However, there is a picture of headship there that we see clearly taught because of Christ in the gospel. Christ, as the head of the church, did not come to boss her into submission. He shut his mouth and he died in his own flesh to present her blameless and spotless. And that's what will be there in Ephesians 5. That is the role and the authority of the husband as the head is to shut his mouth and die. Alright, so ladies and, and, and gentlemen, we have a mess in America's church. We have a mess in America's church. And people who don't like that, I really don't care because I'm not going to discuss it except that the Word of God be our guide. You see? Well, you know, traditionally, I don't care about tradition. Historically, I don't care about history. Biblically, not logically reasoning through text, literally reading the text, teaches us this truth. And we got this idea of help meet. Where'd that come from? You know what help meet is? A little bit of TVP or a little bit more turkey to the meatloaf. That's help meet. And I know I'm poking at traditions here, but I'm doing it on purpose. Because what I don't want us to do is read into our psychological abusive mentality that we've had all these centuries in the context of husband and wife relationship into the very picture of the gospel because it's not there. So I want to poke at them so that in case they're sitting there as just a good adhesive to your understanding of marriage, that at least you'll be on edge. Well, that's the way I was taught by my mama. That's the way I was taught by my daddy. 
It's like I was taught one time by a very dear mentor, a very dear friend. And he said to me, in the very beginning days of, of my ministry service, James, if you ever have to say, I'm the pastor around here, you're not. You've no longer, you've all of a sudden now not the shepherd. You're not leading anyone. In a very humorous way, he followed up with that one time. He says, uh, a man that's walking and no one is willfully following him is just a man taking a walk. He's no leader. Willful submission is the key. Willful submission. And we'll see that. We'll see that. Because the Lord knows we need to understand it. God said it's not good, so all of a sudden it's not good. Why did God create Adam? To redeem him. To show that in his state, as we'll talk about that state in a moment, of innocence, that there was nothing he could do to sustain his own life except that God be his life. The power of God is God, and God is his life. And then before this, we see all of a sudden the creation of the woman comes right after something, right? A negative command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden, for the day you eat of it, you will die. It is a guarantee you will die. Now I'm going to give you a wife. This isn't coincidence. This isn't just the order of the cards that Moses picked up off the ground with a bunch of facts. This isn't a wild transposition of some long story that he just decided to put a little flair on and choose where it went. This is divine speak. This is God himself speaking through this prophet Moses, showing the order in which we need to understand the existence of marriage, and it's right after the, the command not to eat of this tree. Because life is in the presence of God. Remember what we've talked about the last two weeks? Eden is a picture of God being the life giver. That which God promises and God's power as long as we remain in God's power. But beloved, we don't have the power, nor do we have the humility, even in innocence, to remain in the power of God. We cannot do it. You cannot stay in the love of God. You cannot stay in the life of God. You cannot stay in the power of God. That's the whole point of Him being God and we not being God, is that He has to keep us. He has to snatch us. He has to sustain us. He has to, 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 to capture us. He has to pull us out of darkness. He has to pull us out of death. He has to cause us to be born again. He has to command us to do the things that we cannot do. And then in that command, just like He said, let there be, then He did and there was, when He commands His sheep to hear the gospel and to know Him, they do. They do. And in the Word of God, in the life of the believer, we grow in our understanding, and we grow in our understanding, but we must maintain humility and dependence upon Him in every ounce of that understanding. If you don't think God can pull a Nebuchadnezzar in your life and take away everything you think you have, keep it up. And I stand here before you having been humbled many times over by God in His loving hand of correction, also known as discipline. You know, discipline is love, right? Not punishment. 
So God said, eat and live, eat and die. But you cannot be alone. And if you eat of me and my promises and my power and you remain in me, you remain in my Eden, you remain in my presence, that's what Eden represents, you remain in that which I have created to provide for you, you shall surely live. But the moment that you stray outside of this provision, you shall surely die. Now I want you to understand that all is well with the world that I've made and it's all good, but there's one thing lacking. And you don't understand it yet, Adam, because you're not yet enlightened. You haven't had to be humbled. And you haven't had the arrogance of something that was of your own flesh and blood now offering you something different. I mean, this is powerful stuff, y'all. If there was, you know, adults only in the room, we could get a little bit more clear on some of these things as we move through it. But we, we need to pay attention that this is God's purpose. God decreed and purpose the fall. That's why He gave Adam a wife. To show him who he is. He's the wife. You're the wife. I'm the wife. Christ is the bridegroom. And it is not good that we be alone. It is not good that we stay in the tending of a material world thinking that we can affect our own life. It is only by the promise and the power of God because in every way, even in innocence without sin, we will eventually fall to pride and to humility and to self-sufficiency because that is what creatures do. We are not God. And so this is a picture. Adam... Eve, Christ, the church, God, creation, God creating man. All of this is a picture, picture of life coming from Jesus Christ alone. And this is before the fall ever took place. And I remember years and years ago as I was just really studying John's gospel in the beginnings of, of my love affair with, with John's writing. And going back through and just seeing, oh wow, that, that, that. My Old Testament theology began to come to life. And it, it just empowered me. And I began to see, oh wow, you know, the, after the fall, the promise of Christ. There's the first promise of Christ. And the first promise of Christ is let there be light. The second promise of Christ is that God can separate the light from the darkness. The third promise of Christ is that out of this chaotic thing, God can create order and sustain life and create a place for His people, for life, for His creatures, for things to live. This is the promise of Christ. This is the promise of gospel. This is good news. And then here, the creation of man and woman in our image. This is the promise of Christ. And then... Adam, and it's not good for you to be alone. I will make a out of you a helper for you. This is a picture of Christ. And we've, we looked at that. If you missed last week, listen to that message and, and see that picture. So we know that before the fall ever took place, God has said it is not good that you be alone. So the good news is that you will not be alone. It reminds me of what Christ prayed at the cross. My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? For us to not be alone, Christ must be alone. And bearing the weight of wrath. And bearing the weight of justice. And bearing the weight of true judicial righteousness from the Father upon Himself in order to be the bridegroom for His people. That His bride may come, not as whores, not as fallen people, but as saints, clean and pure. Clothed in the righteous glory of His perfection. This is why this is written. This is not a manifestation of biological existence. This is a time for worship, a time for us to see life in Christ. God is good and all that God does is good even when we see God affect things that are bad. When God put the tree in the garden that He told Adam not to eat, it was good. Why? Because only God can sustain His people. Otherwise, Adam would have grown out of innocence and out of humility to think that all of his efforts to maintain his life were by the work of his hands. Have you not done that? Have we not done that? Eight or nine years ago when I renovated my house, it's, it's over 125 years old, and it had no air conditioning, and I had like one power line, one plug-in, one pipe, <laughs> no closets. And I hung my back door. And I was so proud. If you've never hung a door, it'll make a sailor out of you. It's not simple, especially in a house like that. Some of my door jams are this way. <laughs> Trapezoids. And I shut the door, and it didn't work. I wiggled it, digged it, shimmed it, did everything, took a little belt sander, got it. And when I shut that door for the last time, and it went click, just like it does now, click. I said, oh, look at this. And I stepped back and I fell right through the HVAC vent into the ground. Scuffed my shin this far. Skin came off. It was awful. First thing that popped into my mind, pride comes before the fall. I literally, I just, I, I sort of preached that to myself as I limped around. For the, I'm very accident prone when I'm doing work. Um, because of pride, I think. But we're prideful. We would take credit for our work. We, like, we want to step back and behold, look what I, not look what God has made. Wow, I'm so blessed to be in the presence of this. Look what I have kept up, God. Look what I have done. Look at the fertilizer I added to the... I mean, this hippopotamus is really keeping these things green. Look at this. I have done a good job. By your grace, of course. We can't. We can't do that. We're not court jesters that trick the king. This is the truth of humanity. Before we fell into sin, before we fell into death, this is true of what a creature will do when given a will, an understanding, an intelligence. And beloved, as I continue to preach and I continue to think about things there, I could not put on paper all the things I think about. But the things that I think about related to the stuff that I read in the text and, and, and contemplate and pray over 
are not important. What is important is what the text is preaching. And I want you to see this is not an opinion piece of Genesis chapter 2. This is an apostolic exposition of Genesis chapter 2. This isn't James's interpretation. There's no interpreting Genesis 2 because Paul does it for us. Jesus also does it for us in the Gospels to a small degree. But Paul does it. So we yield to the apostles' teaching concerning the Old Testament. We do not read into the mystical ideas of interpreting deeper things. There's no such thing as the deeper things revealed. The whole point of them being deeper things, according to God in Deuteronomy, is that they're not revealed and that we cannot know them, and that we are not going to know them. But the mysteries that are revealed are as plain as the nose on our face. So don't believe me. Believe the Christ that I preach. Believe the gospel that the scripture exposes. Believe the text as it works verse by verse and synergistically throughout all the 66 letters that we have. Let them work together in power. Is that not what Paul tells us in Colossians to be doing? As we worship together, we think about what we're supposed to be doing in worship, and we, we come up with all these different ideas, but what, is, what does Paul say? Paul says, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. How do we do that? Through exhaustive studies, through commentary, through ideologies, through logical inferences, and all sorts of reasoning? No, through simple hearing, reading, and letting the Word of God rest. And then when we find our time in those deep thoughts, in those reflective moments, and in those debative moments, we do not yield the authority of Scripture to our own minds. We yield our minds to the authority of Scripture. Simply. And so in this text then, with all that being said, marriage is a picture just like creation's a picture, just like everything else that we've seen is a picture of Christ and the promise of redemption, marriage is a picture, but it is an imperfect picture, just like everything else we've seen. It is an imperfect picture, it is a temporal picture, it is an incomplete picture, and it is an unnecessary picture. And that marriage is not necessary for salvation in the physical sense. Paul would even say, for those who are dealing with strife in the world that we live in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for those who are dealing with just their upside-down lives, you realize they weren't being persecuted because they were so adamant about being right and so bossy. and so They were being persecuted because of their continued love and intimacy for one another, because of the humility of Christ shared with them by the Spirit of God. God is not looking for heroes, warriors, or soldiers. The days of Joshua died with Joshua. He's not looking for prophets either, except those who can read with two eyes and speak with one mouth that which the apostles have already prophesied concerning Christ. That's it. Copy pesta. That's it. So marriage in this picture shows a lot of things. Marriage is unnecessary. It was necessary in the picture... But it's unnecessary today. We don't have to be married in order to find redemption. Paul says that marriage is temporal. Jesus says that marriage is temporal, but it points to an eternal picture, and because it points to an eternal picture, it should be held with the highest of honor. It should be upheld. 
It should be sacred. That's why we fight for marriage, right? And you'll see why in a minute. There's a lot of things that I want to say today, and, and, and I, don't want to, I don't want to turn this into a 90-minute teaching. It's not necessary. So for the sake of simplicity, let, let me just say some things. If you have questions about them, by all means, let me know. I'm happy to walk through this stuff with you. But we already know that life is found alone in the decrees of God's promises. God said it. It is guaranteed. It is done. He proved that this is how He works. This, he proved this is how His power operates and that what He says comes to pass and what comes to pass can never be changed. We do know that God decreed historically a creation, historically a first family, historically a first marriage, historically a people for His own possession, all these things, but they were temporary pictures of an eternal picture. As has been said often that marriage is a microscopic picture of the macrocosmic reality of Christ and the church. And any other information about marriage is unnecessary. Because the very intimacy that we find in the marriage is insufficient to show the parallel between the intimacy of Christ and the church. And the intimacy that we find in marriage, we learn to grow forgiving and forbearing and loving and, and being hurt and hurting others, that we might also learn with our brothers and sisters in the assembly, when we have our assembly, that we learn to love in the same way Christ loved us together because the relationships of the assembly are eternal. But the relationship of husband and wife is not. Just like all the centuries of the tabernacle and of the temple and all of the worship and all of those things where we see the courts and the outer courts and the inner courts and this place and that place and the Holy of Holies and all. You can lay those exact same blueprints down and you can look at the first part of Genesis and you can lay the Garden of Eden inside of Eden, inside of the created world, etc., etc. You can see that there is even a temple shadow in the creation of the world. And in the very center of it all, God meets man. And God sustains man. How is this guaranteed for us? How do we know that we can have eternal life? And moreover, how do we know that we do have eternal life? Because God has said and decreed His people will be saved from their sins and He has effected the work in Christ Jesus for them and then He grants repentance which is saving faith in Him. It's a rest. It's a, it's a confidence. It's a temporary experience. That's what faith is. And it wanes. It gets good sometimes and it's bad sometimes. And sometimes we think, I don't believe any of this mess. And we don't even say that, even in our minds, but by the way we act, speak, and live, it shows we don't truly trust and rest in the, in the decrees of God. Life is found alone in the decrees and the promises of God. Not what we do with them. Not how we relate to them. Not by how much we know of them. Life is found in the promises of God alone. Life is then granted. Well, how, how do I have life? Because God has decreed it. God has promised it. Life is granted by the perfect righteousness of justice. I want you to hear this for a second. These words are equivocal. Justice is righteousness. 
from a divine perspective. But from a divine perspective, true justice is always served, and it's always served red hot and vengeful. Why? Because he's right and good in his judgments. And no human being, no human being, except Jesus from Nazareth, can stand under the righteous justice of God without condemnation. So that when Jesus Christ stood under the righteous judgment of God, there was no condemnation due Him. He stood in the place of others, and that would be the elect of God, those whom God has loved eternally before the foundations of the world. And Christ satisfied God's justice in that moment. In that moment, He died. Christ said, it is finished. God has decreed, God the Son has said in His human flesh on the cross, it is finished. There's a decree, there's a promise right there. To fulfill all the prophetic words spoken of Him as we see even Peter saying, we do well to pay attention. Life is granted by the perfect righteousness of justice. So when God the Father executed justice because of our sin on the sinless one, righteousness prevails. Now what I just did was quoted Romans 3 in paraphrase form, starting to verse 21 through the end of verse 25. For the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, because the law is a death sentence. The law is a shadow of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. It is not something we can obtain, nor will we ever obtain it. It is always imputed to us. Christ. But the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it as a temporary shadow, like the first marriage and everything else. But the righteousness of God to be received... By faith, which is a gift of God that changes your mind, that's repentance, to know and to rest in the promises of the decrees of God to satisfy His justice and His righteousness in the death of Jesus Christ, whose blood has justified us. You see how many times we hear these types of teaching? What does faith know? Faith knows in a subtle and humble way how to rest in the promises of God's decrees. So therefore, life is secured by the work of Jesus Christ alone. So life is found in the promises of God that He decrees. Life is granted by the righteousness of justice, the perfection of righteousness in justice, which is poured out and secured by the work of Jesus Christ alone. And life is known by knowing God through Jesus Christ. We know this truth by knowing God. We read Genesis, we know Christ. If we know Christ. We understand marriage, we know Christ. And Beloved, this really helps me be a husband. Because I know that my relationship with my wife is not a worldly one. but is a picture of a divine promise. And so if I'm supposed to be like Christ, as we'll see in a minute, if we get to it, um, I'm failing miserably. I can't tend this garden. 
I can't keep this. I can't make her perfect. She sure is not going to make me perfect. Wow, it is about me being a bride and being perfected and washed in the blood of Christ, who is my husband, who will bring me all the way to glory by his promises, not by my faithfulness. That is existed. That, that, in that, we exist in a state of humility, see? So life is known by knowing God through Jesus Christ. And I've got hundreds of texts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7. Um, you know, John 17, 3. All these things we know. We know by seeing. In the face of Christ, we know the Father's promises. We look to the true essence of what God has revealed. He's revealed Himself as sovereign redeemer. And He's revealed Himself as, His, as righteousness which includes justice. But the only way righteousness and justice is fulfilled in the life of the assembly is that grace abounds. We'll get to that in a moment. Well, that's actually the next thing I wanted to say. Life is gained only by grace. Mercy. This is it. Life is gained only by grace. So our life, our sustenance, our eternity is only secure because of grace. It's God giving us that which we cannot earn or affect in ourselves. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite of justice if you want to start taking technical terms. But yet... In grace, righteousness and justice still prevail because justice is satisfied in the grace of God always because Christ, the sinless man in the perfect image of God in the flesh, died in the place of His people. The sins are paid for and God the Father cannot condemn anyone for whom Christ died. So grace... Life is gained only by grace, and grace, beloved, is not offered to us. Think about this for a second. God did not say, if you'd like to live forever, I'm offering you this garden. I just don't want you to eat over here because, I mean, please, don't eat over here. Don't eat over here. Don't eat over here. Is that an offer of life? No, that's a promise of death. That's what the law does. Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. Don't touch, don't taste, don't look, don't say, don't go. Don't think. Or you'll die. <gasps> I mean, we can't process that psychologically. Uh, what do I do? I'm standing on a tightrope and the wind's blowing. 300 feet in the air. Help! Yeah, we're going to fall to our death. The only way we don't fall to our death is that God in His power says, you're not going to fall. I'm going to fall in your place. Grace is not offered, beloved. God does not say anywhere in His Word, here's my graciousness. You just got to touch it. You just got to take it. No, God explains that grace is not a thing. Understand that, beloved. Grace is not a thing. It's not a subset of spiritual luggage that God carries around and goes, a little bit of grace over here. Sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Now let me mail this 
God won't take grace, I'll just mail him some. Look at that, grace in the mail, what am I going to do with it? No. Grace is the effectual work of God. A.K.A. the power of God. So grace is God. And God is grace. Grace is God's doing revealed for His people in redemption. Grace is God's power. And God said that His power and what it produced was good. Because what He has put together and what He has promised in His decrees is eternally good. Because He will create it and sustain it. He will provide all the ins and outs of what goodness really is supposed to be. And even in this tiny imperfect picture that's about to unfold in this text, we must understand that we have to rest in Christ alone, the eternal husband of the true bride. And so now that the introduction is over, let's talk about marriage. In Ephesians 5, go there real quick. In Ephesians 5, we see Paul talking about this text in Genesis 2. He says it is an incredible mystery. And that this mystery, and I've read this a couple of times already, and we, we know the text. It's not like we have to go through it a lot. Starting in verse 15. Let's look at verse 18. There's a negative command there. Do not get drunk with wine. And there's a context for that, but let's move on. For that is debauchery, but here's the positive command. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, as you're filled with the Spirit, there are things you are also doing, which is addressing one another with singing and songs. Those aren't specific types of music, those three things. These... Address each other in songs, singing, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here is the picture of the church in submission. It's important because, oh my goodness, do we have verse 22 as a proof text for our culture. And most of the cults of the world would love Ephesians 5.22. Out of text, out of context. So we are, as the church, submitting to one another. What does that mean? Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Be subject to Him. Marriage is bound to a mutual relationship. And it's temporary. The relationship of the assembly is eternal, though it is temporal in this life. And it has a, it's a mutual relationship. You're not here today for you. You're here for the rest of us. You're here for the Lord's purposes. And so marriage is bound, let me just give you some thoughts, that the text teaches marriage is bound to mutual giving, mutual submission, mutual patience, 
which makes the necessity of mutual reconciliation. <laughs> we are to live in marriage in that way because that's what the gospel is, right? The assembly is centered on giving to one another, to submitting to one another, to being patient with one another, and to reconciling with one another at all costs according to the gospel. Paul would tell the Corinthians that love, y'all think y'all are loving, just like he told the church of Ephesus, like Jesus told the church of Ephesus in John's revelation. Look at your staunch doctrinal positions, but you're a bunch of losers. And I'm going to destroy you and remove you from the earth. I'm going to remove your influence from the earth because you have forsaken your love for me. So go back and change the way you're thinking and remember your love for me by having love for one another, even the foreigner and even the ones who you should be patient. You should endure evil even with much patience. Beloved, the Scripture doesn't tolerate anything else. You can have every doctrinal position in the world correct. You can know the heart of Christ verbatim with your mouth and mind, but if you don't have love... You and I are worthless trash. And when we get upset and go, well, I'm just worthless trash. Good! We're at the beginning stages of something great. Humility. Because as long as James thinks he's something important to anything, I'm always going to get in the way of everything. Marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the church submits to one another. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, which is His body, and Christ Himself is its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ through submitting to one another, so wives also be subject to your husbands in everything. Husbands, likewise... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ submitted Himself to the governing authorities of His enemies. Christ submitted Himself to the Heavenly Father to do the work of redemption, not as God Almighty, the Creator of the world, but as a lowly, ugly, worthless human with no power to be seen, except when He began to manifest His power for the sake of proving who He was. And even when people saw that, they would not rest in Him unless the Spirit of God birthed them anew. You see? It's not about evidence. That's not, apologetics is not about evidence. It's about contextualized proclamation. It's about preaching and teaching the text of Scripture. Not defending an argument. Debate, debate's never saved anybody. Debate has never been used by the Spirit of God to open the eyes of anyone. Only the Word of God will open the eyes by the Spirit. So here we have this picture of Christ. How did Christ save His bride? He gave Himself up for her. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not demand its own way. Love believes all things. I mean, we can go on and on. We're not suspicious of one another. Husbands, 
Love your wife as Christ of the church. He gave Himself up for her. He died for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing. And this is, this is poetry. This is an image here. The washing of water with the Word. So that He might present the church, the assembly, to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be set apart and without blemish. In the same way, this is what Christ did, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man, how we see Moses God speaking through Moses now. Therefore, a man, a direct quote, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. Mr. Micah's go, huh? What? That's not normal. That's not logical. That's strange. It's outside the veil of pop culture. It's outside the veil of historical culture. It's outside the veil of humanity. That's right. It's a divine mystery. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So let each one of you love your wife as you love yourself. Respect her in that way. Cherish her in that way. Give to her in that way. Submit to her in that way. Be patient with her in that way. Reconcile with her in that way. And wives likewise see that you respect your husbands in the same way. There are not different things for husbands and wives to do. It is a mutual submission. And the only boss is Jesus Christ in the picture of the gospel that He's presented through it. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. I'm glad I don't. But I know the very fact that you're standing up haughty shows you're not humble. You see? And there's nothing else to do. Well, I, my legs don't work. We haven't walked in six years. You've got to stand up a little bit. Let's help you stand up. I'm not standing up until my legs work. Okay. Sit there then. The gospel declares that God gave the Son just as God gave and made Adam. God sent the Son who is the true image of God in the flesh. And then God prepared out of Adam a bride for him. God prepares a bride for Jesus Christ out of his body. How does God prepare the bride for Christ? Because his body was broken and his blood was spilled. Just like Adam's. Picture. And the son submits to the father. The father is patient with his people. The son atones for his people. And justice prevails and righteousness reigns. Why? Why would he do all this? To the praise of his glory to the praise of all that He is, to, to the praise of everything He's shown us concerning Himself. This is why He does it. See, all that Adam had was good. Everything he had was good. And Adam was innocent. 
Eve was innocent at that moment. They were not righteous. Only God is righteous. Only God is righteous. There's no man except the God-man who has ever been righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God in the flesh. No man has ever been righteous. For if Adam were to be righteous, he would be God. Adam was innocent of sin. Innocent of the knowledge of anything but walking in the cool of the day with righteousness. Imagine Jesus and Adam standing in the midst of the garden and God by His divine power causing the creatures of the world to come by that Adam might name them. Why not just say, hey, Adam, there's a lot of stuff I've made and none of them are suitable for you. I want you to, I'm going to make something for you out of you. Put you to sleep, okay? Even in our own will, there's no way we could choose rightly because there's no way to choose rightly. God must be the chooser. God must be the maker. God must be the sustainer. The gospel is the power of God. Adam and Eve were one flesh. They were complete. They were perfect in all human ways in their relationship, their DNA. And I'm a sucker for intellect. And I couldn't imagine what a conversation with complete ignorance of many things. But how amazing would it be to talk with the first people in innocence? Don't know. Don't, don't want to think about it too long. So God ordained the fall eternally. God conditioned it and purposed it. And all good things were there. And as we'll see next week, the introduction to naked and not ashamed is a very short-lived experience. And Adam, having all good things, the serpent knew that there was one thing he could do to get to Adam. And it was the will of God. You see, the marriage picture of being one flesh. And we understand the biology of that. We understand the intimacy of that. But there is a shared life that we share in Christ. There is a shared love that we have in Christ. And there is a shared glory or revelation of who we really are that we have in Christ. And just as the creation in all of its order is temporal, it points to the power of God and the garden is small and short-lived and temporal. It's a picture that points to the power of God as the life giver. And just as the marriage of the man and the woman imperfect, it points to the perfect picture of the power of God unto salvation, which is the report of His work and power to save His people from their sins. And beloved, because of that, though we are ashamed and sinful because we are married to Christ, we are not ashamed. We are not ashamed. Even when we struggle in this flesh, we're going to struggle. Even when our faith wanes and it, we, we don't know what we're going to do from day to day and we cannot live the way we ought to live and love the way we ought to love and submit and give and, and be subject to humility and we just stomp our little feet. Even if we don't act it out, we do it inside and we're, we should be ashamed, but we're not ashamed before the Father because Christ 
took our shame. He was stripped of His glory. He was made naked. He was made bare in His flesh. And He was destroyed by the righteous justice of God so that we could be the righteousness of God. And that's what marriage points to. And beloved, it goes a long way. It goes all the way to the end. It takes us all the way there. And in just a few short verses, the serpent enters the scene by the will of God so that by God's will, Adam and Eve would prove the power of their flesh was not to humbly rest in the promises of God's decrees, but to make themselves their own creator, to find their own way to life, to be like God. Christ, God in the flesh, has saved us from that very arrogance. Let's worship Him for it. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for the picture of the cross, for the picture of marriage, for the picture of the garden. As You've recorded in Your Word, Lord, we see it all. And we know that the only thing with true effect is what Christ did on the cross. What Christ accomplished on the cross. Not that He died, but He as the God-man, the sinless, righteous man, died in the place of His people. In the place of your people. So that we now are not condemned. We are not ashamed to stand before you in the throne of grace to say... Hey, Dad. Hey, Papa. And you lend your ear and your heart toward us by grace alone because you are right in doing so. And it is good because our sins have been paid for and our standing is a place of perfection and a place of righteousness. And Father, our spouses our friends, our relationships in the church, we're all sinners, but we all, if we are in Christ, stand in a place of righteousness. Lord, there is nothing for us to condemn because You have settled the record of our account in the body of Christ and credited our account with the righteousness of Christ. So Father, I pray. I pray that we can be a people who are giving, a people who are submissive, a people who are humble, a people who are patient, a people who are always about reconciling relationships with each other because of Christ. Therefore, we do all that we are able to do in our lowly flesh by Your mercy to continue to exhibit the picture of Christ in the church with the relationships we have here. And ultimately, into the very end of it all, we praise You for Your mercy and grace toward us. For only by Your grace are we saved. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, church.